In uh, 1859, the famous tightrope walker Charles Blondin traveled to Niagara Falls. And when he arrived, he stretched a three-inch wire over the entire gorge. And then suspended on this wire in 1859, he walked 1,100 feet from one side to the other. Now, he actually did this a number of times in a variety of ways. He did it blindfolded. He did it with a sack over his head. He did it pushing a wheelbarrow. He also did it on stilts. Can you imagine? In fact, one time, he sat down at the halfway point in order to cook and eat an omelet. That's right, he prepared his omelet while on the tightrope, and then get this, he then ate said omelet while standing on a chair with only one chair leg on the rope. But you know what, that's not even his greatest stunt. No, you know what his greatest feat was? It was carrying a man on his back over the tightrope. Blondin carried his manager on his back from one side of the falls to the other. Can you imagine? I get nervous just thinking about it right now, right? He, he carried his manager on his back. Would you ever do something like that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about this? this? Hold on, hold on. Let me ask you this. What would it take for a person to convince you that they are capable of safely carrying you on their back while walking on a tightrope over Niagara Falls? What would it take? What, what would that person have to demonstrate to you that they, they are trustworthy enough, they are capable enough, to carry you all the way to the other side to safety. Now, for me, it would not be enough to know that they could just do it by themselves. I'd say, good for you, I need more than that. Nor would I be impressed that they can cook some food while on the tightrope. No, for me, it wouldn't be enough just to know the guy is good at it. No, before I get on that guy's back to carry me over danger safely to the other side, I'd want him to be perfect. Amen? Why? Well, I think it's obvious because my life depends on it, right? Because look, in that moment... I'm putting all my weight, I'm putting all my weight on him, aren't I? I am trusting that he is both strong enough and capable and skilled enough to carry me safely to the other side. This morning, we resume our study of 2 Samuel 22. And in many ways, 
this text is inviting us to do something that is not much different than getting on the back of a tightrope artist. In fact, I want you to see it's actually more serious than that. See, as we discussed last week, our text this morning is an invitation. It's an invitation to make the Lord your rock. This, as I suggested last week, is the main point of 2 Samuel 22. It's an invitation to make the Lord your rock. That is to make the Lord that which you place all your hope and confidence. The Lord is the one where, like on a tightrope, you are clinging to him, you're putting all your confidence in him and him alone. To make the Lord your rock is to make the Lord that which you live for. This is the action that David's song presses us to make. If, if you, were, you were here last week, then you'll recall how this phrase, the Lord is my rock, is the refrain that echoes throughout this entire chapter. Not only does this refrain open the song in verse 1, but it's repeated in the middle and towards the end. I have it here up on the screen, verse 1. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. In the middle, verse 32. For who is God besides the Lord and who is a rock except our God? And then at the end of this chapter, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Furthermore, as we read in the next chapter, chapter 23, verse 3, David speaks of the Lord not only as his rock, but as the rock for all of God's people, Israel. And what I want you to see, Faith, is that David just didn't pen this, so this song for kicks, which is almost repeated identically in Psalm 18. No, David wrote this psalm and the author of 2 Samuel intentionally placed it at the end of this book so that God's people, the reader of this chapter, would follow suit like David and make God the rock of their lives as well. As John Calvin said, commenting on this passage, he said, let us learn to apply to our own use those titles which are here ascribed to God, namely, the Lord is my rock. And notice what he says, and apply them as an antidote against all the perplexities and distresses which may assail us. The truth is, faith, we all are looking to someone, to something to be our rock, that something or someone to carry us over the dangers of life. We're going to place our weight and confidence in someone to carry us on the other side. And Scripture in general, and this passage in particular, is calling God's people to make the Lord your rock. Not your children, not your spouse, not your career, not money, not finances, not your reputation, not your home, not all the other small pebbles we often look to to be our rock, but no to turn away from those and have the Lord himself be our stronghold and confidence. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 22. That's page 274 
in that paperback Bible. And like last week, the question I want us to consider this morning, which I think is very appropriate, and that is why? Why should you make the Lord your rock? I think my job provides me with enough security. I think the love of my spouse provides me with enough security. Why, why should I make the Lord preeminent? Why should I make the Lord my rock more than anything else? Well, as we discussed last week, I, this chapter, in this chapter, David beautifully articulates three compelling reasons why. And last week, we, first at the, we looked at the first reason, and that is because the Lord is mighty to save. Do you remember this? You'll recall that David begins this chapter, he begins his song of deliverance by describing God's mighty salvation during the Exodus. Why? Because although the Exodus did not happen to him, it did happen for him. Right? The freedom David enjoyed, the relationship he had with God, his identity as God's king were all founded on the Exodus. That great moment in salvation history when God liberated his people Israel from their bondage of Pharaoh and Egypt and called them and made them his own. David, in this opening portion of this chapter, is recounting God's mighty salvation of his people, of which David is a part of. And this text presses upon our hearts that we ought to make the Lord a rock because he is, in fact, as David testifies, he is mighty to save. No other pebble can do what God has done. Right? Through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, to which the Exodus points forward to, in Christ, we, Christian, we've been freed from the slavery of sin. Sin is no longer our master. We are no longer now under God's just wrath for our sins. Indeed, like Israel of old, in Christ we've been redeemed out of bondage, so now we can enjoy and worship God. And it's worth repeating, we mentioned this last week, but friend, we have to understand, no other rock, no other pebble can do that. There's no other rock that will die in your place to forgive you of your sins and then give you a perfect righteousness so you can have a relationship with the one true and living God and have the hope of eternal life. Money can't do that. A spouse can't do that. Your finances can't do that. A house can't do that. A job can't do that. A nation can't do that. Nothing can do that. Only God in Christ. Indeed, there's no other rock that can withstand life's ultimate storm, and that's death. Jesus is the only rock that defeated death and satisfied God's wrath for your sins. And that, and that enough, that should just seal the deal right there. <laughs> when we consider the eternity at stake and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that is convincing enough. But there's a second reason that I want to draw your attention to why we ought to make the Lord a rock. And that's because he is wise in his ways. And this is what David articulates next. Look with me, beginning in verse 21. And as I read this, I want you to notice how the whole emphasis on this section, the, the emphasis of these verses, 21 through 31, is how God correctly deals with David and other, others. God's manner towards people is proper, good, wise, and perfect. 
So following your copy of God's word as I read, beginning in verse 21, we read this. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness, cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not return aside. I was blameless before him and kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness, cleanness, cleanness in his sight. Now hold on a moment. What is David saying here? Is David claiming, based on his words of righteousness and so forth, is he claiming that he achieved salvation through his own righteousness? And the answer is no. Why? Because David is not speaking about how he has earned salvation. Remember, he just talked about God's mighty act of deliverance in the previous section, right? God is mighty power. He has mighty power to save Israel, of which David is a part of. No, instead, faith, David is speaking of how God has dealt with him as one who is in a covenant relationship with God. You see, faith, in verse 22, David is not claiming perfection. No, as the second half of that verse makes clear, David is simply claiming overall fidelity to the Lord. That is, he has not faltered, committed apostasy, nor turned his back on the Lord. Indeed, as several commentators have pointed out, the Hebrew word that is translated blameless in verse 24, it does not connotate sinlessness, but rather it connotates wholeness. Faith, when David speaks of his righteousness and purity in verses 21 and 25, he's not pointing to sinless perfection, but to a life direction. Yes, did David sin? But even after his sin, he moved back towards the Lord. He was devoted towards the Lord. David is saying, as the summary of his whole life, it was Godward moving. You see, Faith, all David is saying is what the rest of the Bible says. You know what that is? Very simply, those who faithfully follow the Lord and esteem his word by obeying it are those who can expect the Lord's blessing. And aren't we glad about that? I mean, aren't we glad that our good covenant-keeping God blesses those who love him and obey his word? Aren't we glad about that? Aren't we glad that we can expect the Lord's blessing when we walk in obedience with him? I mean, what kind of God would he be if he didn't do that? No, this, this what we see here is not a blip on the biblical storyline. No, we see this throughout the pages of Scripture. For God's own people, those who walk in righteousness and who obey him and seek to honor him, the Lord in his kindness says, you can expect blessing from the Lord. 
Now, I want you to see the opposite is true for those who don't. That is, on the flip side, those who reject God and his word cannot expect his blessing. And notice that's exactly where David goes next. Look at the following verses. Notice what he says there, beginning in verse 26. He says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely. And with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And man, have we not seen this in spades in First and Second Samuel? Did not God bring down prideful Saul? Did, did not God bring down and bring brought low prideful Goliath, right? Consider also how God dealt shrewdly with Absalom. Right? Absalom thought he was outsmarting everyone by bringing Ahithophel on his team, right? Yeah, what did we read in 2 Samuel 17, 14? God ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel in order to bring harm on Absalom. So Absalom thought he's being shrewd, he's being cunning, and God, by overthrowing the good counsel of Ahithophel, actually brings harm on Absalom. Now notice what else David testifies about the character and nature of God. Look at verses 29 through 31. Read this. He says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, and here's the summary of what this section, this God his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Amen. Amen. In the movie Back to the Future Part 2, Marty McFly returns from the future back to 1985. Yet when he returns, to his great horror, Marty discovers that Biff, his family's nemesis, is now the wealthiest man in America. Not only that, Biff has extraordinary power and control over Marty's hometown. Do any of you happen to remember how Biff came to be so wealthy and powerful? It was because Biff was in possession of one item. And do you remember what that one item was? What was it? Very good. It was a book, but not just any book, a sports almanac. An almanac containing the results of the major sporting events from 1950 to 2000. Right? The older Biff bought it, and went back in time to give it to the younger Biff. You see, he had a book that was perfect and true. Every word in that book 
came to pass. Let me ask you, what would you do if you came across a book like that? How would you view a book where everything in it, not some of the things, not partially, but everything in it came to pass and was true? But not simply about sports, but rather life. That is, what if that book, what if everything that book said about relationships, work, parenting, marriage, finances, what if that book, what it claimed, was all true? How would you regard that book? Would you read it? Or would you ignore it? Would you give it prominence in your life? Would you submit to its teachings, even though at times it might be hard to understand? Or would you reject it? Or maybe if not reject it, just kind of view it dimly. How about this? Would that book be the first place you'd go for guidance? Or would it kind of be further down the list, like fourth, fifth, or sixth? Notice what David says there in verse 31. Faith far greater and indeed far more valuable than that sports almanac is the word of the Lord. And I wonder, the question I've been asking myself, do you view Scripture that way? Do, is that how you see this book? Do you believe that it does, in fact, in every area in which it speaks, proves true? Before you answer, notice what David does there in verse 31. He actually does something that we see throughout Scripture, and that is David links God's character with God's word. Do you see that? This is to say God's word is perfect and comes true because God himself is perfect and true. God's word is wise because God is wise. The, the two are linked together. In other words, what you think about God's word reveals what you really think about God. Notice, David in this section testifies that God's way is perfect, meaning his way with people is perfect. As I mentioned earlier, the whole emphasis on this section is how God correctly deals with David and others. I mean, just notice how often that word dealt or that word deals is used. And I want you to notice God is not a flat, one-dimensional character, is he? He just doesn't respond to everybody in the exact same way, does he? No, to the merciful, he is merciful. To the pure, he is pure. To the crooked, he deals shrewdly. And again, aren't we glad about this? You see, faith, in these verses, David expresses the principle that God, while unchanging in himself, he responds to men and women differently according to their response to him. 
And primarily, David wants us to know that God will be true to us if we commit ourselves to him in faith. Commentator Michael Wilcox articulated it best. He writes this. He says, those who want to be true to God's word will find that he too is true to it, to their great encouragement. And isn't that an encouragement? That as we lean in on God's word, that we seek to obey his ways, that we seek to walk in his commandments. God, in his kindness and in his grace, is good and faithful to us. Now, this is not to say that those who trust in God will never experience difficulties. I mean, David's life testifies, does it not, to the many trials and sufferings that the godly must endure. Some, as a result of their vices, but also some as a result of their virtues. Yet for those who faithfully embrace the principles of God's covenant, they will find that God keeps covenants with them. You know, I don't know how the famous tightrope walker Charles Blondin dealt with his manager, especially when carrying him on his back across the falls. But Christian, I do know, based on the testimony of this text, that God's manner towards his people is perfect, including you. He knows what is best. Faith, why, why should you make the Lord your rock? Because he is wise in his ways, which means his word, this good book can be trusted. Just by way of application, how, how would your life change if you believed that God was wise in his ways? Is there any area of your life you feel God isn't wise or he isn't dealing appropriately with yourself or others? Does this passage in any way alter your confidence in God's words to guide your life? I hope so. I want you to, one more thing. I want you to notice what David says there in verse 29. It's something we see similar in one of the other psalms. Notice what he says in verse 29. He says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. As we see other places, when the, David says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, right? In, um, in J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo and Samwise, they have to pass through utter darkness, the utter darkness of the giant spider's lair. And upon entering, when all was dark and there seemed to be no way to go forward safely, Samwise remembered the star glass given to Frodo by the elven princess. And when she gave it to Frodo, she said to him, may it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. And those that are familiar with the book, you know that when Samwise brandished the star glass in the spider's lair, its light both repelled their evil pursuer and enabled them to see their way to safety. 
Well, notice, David said something very similar about God's word here, doesn't he? As his lamp, the Lord, by his word, as he testifies elsewhere in the Psalms, and not only guides him, but it also dispels darkness. This is why I just want to encourage us as a, as a church, as I, as I seek to encourage my heart as well, to really esteem this book, to make it my lamp, when oftentimes I don't. And the way you make it your lamp is by giving careful thought to the truth of God's word and how it applies to your life. And I need to tell you, this requires work. This requires study. And this labor yields much fruit. So first, make the Lord your rock because he is mighty to save, he is wise in his ways. And then finally, he is faithful to his promises. Notice what we read in this this final section, beginning in verse 32. He says, for who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Notice, he's asking this question. He's inviting you to respond in the same way. He says, this God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Now, this is most likely a reference to 1 Samuel 23. And this is one of the blessings of preaching through books of the Bible is because as the author recounts things earlier in the book, we know what he's talking about. In that chapter, 1 Samuel 23, you'll recall how King Saul was trying to kill David on the mountain. And Saul would be on one side and David would move to the other side and go back and forth, back and forth until finally the Philistines came upon Saul and Saul had to retreat, right? Well, this is what David is getting at when he said, he made my feet like the deer so he could avoid being killed. But the most important detail we need to glean from these verses and the verses that follow is the object of the verbs. And that is God. Notice what God does in and through David. So again, verse 34, he made my feet. Now in verse 35, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Now David changes and he just speaks directly to the Lord. He says, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn my back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. And remember, this is not David just hacking off people he doesn't like. David is God's anointed king. These enemies are the enemies of God and his people. Notice what he says in verse 40, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. Notice again, it's God the one who's doing the work. God is equipping David. David is going out of his way to testify that God is accomplishing these actions. Look at what he says there in verse 41. You made my enemies, you made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. 
you delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Think of all the Gentiles that we've seen throughout this book who came to David, especially when David was fleeing Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 15. People like Ittai the Gittite or Hushai. They came to David and did exactly this. They obeyed him. In fact, many were instrumental in defeating the enemies of David and God, namely Absalom. Now notice how David closes this song. He does so by by recounting God's covenantal faithfulness to him. Read this. Verse 47, The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out of, from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. He says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Amen. Uh, It's recorded that after the astonishing English victory in 1415, that King Henry V ordered the singing of Psalm 115. And Henry, and with him the entire army, they fell prostrate on the ground before God when the words were sung, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. After this great victory, they fell down before the Lord. Well, I want to observe that we see the same spirit in David, don't we? He is quick to give God the glory and identify his work in establishing him as king. Especially in these final verses, David is saying that God is faithful to the covenant promises he made with David back in 2 Samuel 7. Remember what God promised there? God promised David an eternal kingship. And as we keep reading the Bible, as the New Testament makes clear, God's covenant with David and David's praise to the Lord here in chapter 22 are ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel 22, David praised the Lord because David could see firsthand how the Lord was faithful to his covenant promises. Yet David did not live to see the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promise. How much more privileged are we today, right? For we can read not only of how God was faithful to the promises of David when David was alive, but also how those promises are brought to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So you know what the headline is? God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to do what he promises to do. Again, 
yet another reason why we ought to make the Lord our rock. And so as we bring this in for landing, can I ask, why wouldn't you want to make the Lord your rock? A God who is mighty to save, a God who is wise in his ways, in his dealings, who is perfect in his ways, and a God who is faithful to his promises. My prayer for us as a church, that it would be said of us, Faith Community Church, that we stand on Christ the solid rock. Not only collectively as a church, but also as individuals. Amen? Let's pray.